Hi there, and welcome to the Wayback Music Machine podcast, the show that takes a lighthearted look at the week that was in rock and roll history. This is road trip number 46, and we've got an interesting one this week. Aaron, where are we headed? Well, we're heading kind of all over the place, but we're going to the UK and Los Angeles. Yeah, that should be great. And then we'll head back at the end on our uh, final segment to Memphis area. So that'll be fantastic, but uh, a few interesting stories. And normally we kick off these road trips in the afternoon, but this morning we're using our morning radio voices because we are doing this at eight o'clock in the morning so that's a little well, unusual as well that's, it's because of me Tony because I'm working today so I'm like you you get to have the whole week off like I you know I'm, I'm envious because I used to love March break as a kid you still get March break <laughs> well and you know what though pretty soon my friend we will be let's not uh, let it slip just yet but pretty soon we're both going to have a whole lot more free time so a very long March break. <laughs> <laughs> and on that note, let's hit the road. It's a new year and it's a brand new Wayback Music Machine. CD player? Check. GPS? Double check. Roll bar? They're on the way. I'm Tony Stewart. I'm Aaron Badgley. And we're getting ready for another rock and roll road trip. Are you ready, my friend? I'm always ready. Well, in that case, buckle up, because it's road trip time. So, Aaron, where would you like to go first today? Why don't we head off to uh, London, uh, 1964, because it's a topic that you know is near and dear to my heart. So, how about there, Tony? Okay, let's go to March 14th, 1964, and we'll be right back. Okay, here we are on March 14th, 1964 in rainy London. And Aaron, when I was researching the show for this week, I came across this story and I thought, this is perfect for the show. So what happened on this uh, historic day? Well, the, for the first time in the British recording history, all top 10 singles in the UK were by British acts. Now, that may not sound like a big deal because, I mean, America would always have top 10 would be all American, for example. But you're talking about a country that was living off the, a diet of American rock and roll, pop, rhythm and blues. So for the British to have all top 10 British artists was pretty monumental. Um, and what's even more interesting, Tony, is there's no Beatles in the top 10 singles. Yeah, I was noticing that when I was looking over the top 10 there. Where, where are the Beatles? So who was on the list, though? Let's go over that. Yeah, and I'll tell you, I'm going to, when I get to a certain act, I'll tell you why there's no Beatles. But number 10 was a, an artist named Kathy Kirby, and um, she's very poppy, very lovely. Let Me Go, Lover. Number 9 was Eden Kane, his song Boys Cry, uh, and they do, Tony, sadly. Um, <laughs> number 8 was the Mersey Beats. Now, we've talked about Mersey side, Mersey Beats They're from Liverpool, um, and they had a song called I Think of You. Number uh, seven is Needles and Pins by The Searchers. You know where they got their name, right? Uh, no, but I know I love that song. But uh... It's a John Wayne movie. Oh, okay. But here's, here's a weird thing. They, they, they chose that name, The Searchers, the movie, because in that movie, John Wayne gives his famous line, that'll be the day, which is where Buddy Holly. Well, that's right. Buddy Holly used that. Yeah. 
See, see all the connections, Tony. Yeah, that's very cool. Well, you know what? Give me a sec. I'm going to ring the bell because we just learned something. So, <laughs> okay, go ahead. Okay, number six is uh, a cover of Just One Look, uh, the originally done by Doris Troy. Uh, this one's by the Hollies. Now, you, you were surprised there's no Beatles. Well, here's the reason. Number five is not Fade Away by the Rolling Stones. And the Stones and the Beatles made it packed, basically. They would call each other and say, when are you releasing a single? And they would release it so they wouldn't compete with one another. Yeah, you know, that's one of the misconceptions people had, right? Of course they were were competitors, but they were very friendly uh, with each other, and they knew each other well. And you're right, they did that kind of behind-the-scenes planning so that they were not um, on top of each other, stepping on each other's feet. I think that's very, very cool. I do, too. And it shows you that they, you know, there wasn't this kind of greed. It was like, let's all enjoy success, basically, you know? Well, and I think that decision probably made the British invasion even more uh, popular. Mm. You're probably right. You're probably right. Number four is a record that my mother used to play all the time in my home. Diane by The Bachelors. Number three is is Little Children by Billy G. Kramer and the Dakotas, who was managed by... Brian Epstein and produced by George Martin. Number two, the huge threat to the Beatles in England, more so than the Stones, the Dave Clark Five with bits and pieces. And number one, someone who I I just love, Scylla Black, real name Scylla White from Liverpool, managed by Brian Epstein, produced by George Martin, and her first number one, Anyone Who Had a Heart. So that was the top 10. I love Scylla Black too, and that is a great song. And uh, a lot of Beatles connections in here, even though they weren't on the top 10, right? So She had a great voice. Like she just had a naturally warm... Uh, there was a really good docudrama put on TV. I saw it on TV a couple of years ago. They acted out... It was a, it's a, her story is incredible if you watch her, her life story, you know? Mm-hmm. And now, you know, even though the Beatles weren't in this top 10 singles chart, they were, though... Uh, dominating the EP charts, weren't they, that week? And uh, so let's take a look at what you picked. Well, see, this is the thing. I mean, I, I, I get kind of nervous when I don't see the Beatles on the chart. No, I'm just kidding. Um, but the, the top five albums was almost all British, too. Almost. Number five was Jerry and the Pacemakers. How do you like it? Again, produced by George Martin, managed by Brian. Number four, The Hollies. Stay with The Hollies. Now, here's the only non-British. Number three is the soundtrack to West Side Story, which had been in the charts for over two years, which is pretty phenomenal, right? Yeah, that is, uh, that's pretty wild because West Side Story, I've played that uh, in a pit orchestra that played uh, West Side Story. That is a tough book to play. My goodness. That's amazing. It is pretty. And, and uh, did you see the remake that came out just at Christmas time? Now, you know my undying <laughs> love for musical theater so well, that's I'm, I'm gonna let you guess the answer to that question and you're probably gonna be right what do you think i'm gonna go with get the bell ready i'm gonna go with no <laughs> and we have a winner all right let me ring the bell here <laughs> I, I knew the answer i just had to ask <laughs> um and the beatles held down the top two albums and i'll tell you why this is interesting number two is please please me Number one was with the Beatles. Now, Please Please Me had stayed number one from the time it was released in 63 until it was knocked out of number one by With the Beatles. And With the Beatles is going to stay number one until it's knocked out by an album called A Hard Day's Night. So for almost a year and a half, the Beatles were the only group to have a number one album in the UK. Yeah, that's incredible, isn't it? 
Isn't it? And, and of course, the Beatles held down the three spots out of the top five EPs that week, too. So the Beatles were there in the charts. But as we said, you know, they didn't want to compete with their friends. So they said, no, we're not going to put a single out. You go ahead, put out your single, and we'll keep, you know, going back and forth. And speaking of dominating the charts, we are going to head to Los Angeles on our next part of the road trip for a very <laughs> unusual story. And, it's one uh, of the best. <laughs> it is. It's fantastic. It's March 15th, 1972, and a DJ who got so sick of having a certain song requested that he decided to take some action. We'll talk about that. So let's go to March 15th, 1972 in Los Angeles, and we'll be right back. Hi, I'm Stella Panacci. And I'm Bernard Fraser from, from Church, Church of, of Trees. And you're listening to Way Back Music Machine Podcast with Tony Stewart and Aaron Badgley. Hey, guys. So here we are in um, Los Angeles, long before it became the vegetarian capital of the world. And, uh, Tony, there's a DJ here who, quite frankly, snaps. I'm going to turn it over to you. <laughs> yeah. He does snap. A, he does snap, actually. And the police are involved. Uh, so Robert W. Morgan was a very, very well-known DJ in this area. And... In 1972, you know, Donny Osmond was uh, becoming a pretty big deal. Do you remember Donny Osmond? Oh, I tried to forget. Yeah, no, little Donny Osmond from the from the Osmond family. Well, that's right. So uh, Donny Osmond's version of that Paul Anka classic, which I, I say sarcastically because mm-hmm. I can't stand the song. <laughs> uh, Donny Osmond's version of Paul Anka's Puppy Love was getting requested ad nauseum by teenage girls. And uh, this is at KHJ in Los Angeles. and Big station, big station. Yeah, it's a huge station. And that was back in the days that uh, DJs actually had some control over what they played. So, you know what? Um, Robert Morgan threw his hands up in the air and he said, fine, you want to hear Puppy Love? Here you go. And he just spun it for 90 minutes straight. <laughs> Uh, can you imagine and of course um the lapd got involved because they raided the station they received many many calls from listeners who were confused thinking what's going on is somebody taking over the station or but of course it was just robert morgan throwing his hands up in the air and saying you want it you got it so (laughs) he played donny osmond's version of Puppy Love for 90 Minutes Straight on KHJ. I'm speechless because <laughs> I, I it's not it's not a song I like, uh, either version. Oh, same here. Um, and I remember 72 because I remember I was I was all of eight years old and I didn't like, I liked the Jackson 5. I never liked the Osmonds. Um, no, that's but, right. Uh, uh, the Osmonds were like a sanitized white version of the jackson five weren't they it was it was oh uh, oh my gosh oh just (laughs) i've never seen you know i i I think that fluoride made a big comeback during that time just the whiteness of their teeth (laughs) yeah for sure (laughs) but but this poor dj can you imagine he's probably thinking can we play something because when you look at what was out you know we've talked about 1971 and 72 we're talking classic music of the time I mean, when you see the top five singles, you can understand where this guy goes, I can't play this anymore. <laughs> but then he snaps and he just plays it nonstop, you know? Yeah, what a great story. And uh, it's it's funny how, um, you know, like, like I said, DJs had the power to choose what they played back then. And uh, I love his response. It's perfect. 
DJs were celebrities back then. I mean, I, I, I in Toronto here we had Jungle J Nelson in the mornings. Everyone knew Jungle J. And um, you know, we had you had Casey Kasem, you had the Jim Lads of the world, who are, who names were, were were well known. This guy was well known, and he just. <laughs> I mean, you talk about your, your 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 peaceful protest by just playing puppy love ad nauseum. Oh my god! I can only imagine what people listening in their cars and uh, you know heading to work must have thought. Now, I would love to hear whether he said anything in between or he just spun it again. You know, like I wonder if he got in between and went, you know, and here's Donny Osmond with <laughs> puppy love. <laughs> I, would, I would I would hope he did that. Plus, would do things such as. <laughs> I'll be back in a few minutes with more puppy love here on you know, and and you wonder what his uh, bosses must have thought while this was going on. Well, you don't seem to well, and it's kind of scary. You kind of hope the bosses knew. I mean, bosses at that time were renowned for not listening to their own station. But um, I tell you, he should have been charged for cruelty. But um, yeah, exactly, I mean, cruel and, and unusual this, punishment. <laughs> I, yeah. It's like you know the, the the British government used to use white noise on on Irish prisoners. I think this is akin. To that. <laughs> it's like let's just let's just keep playing. And Donny Osmond, this is off his third solo album at the time, and he was all of thirteen. Which you know, I feel bad about knocking a thirteen-year-old kid's song, but it's not a good song. And he's not thirteen anymore, so I can say what I want, right? Well, that's right. But uh, do you remember the variety show that he did with his sister? Oh, um, a little bit country, a little bit rock yeah, and roll. A little bit Marie. of country, a yeah, yeah, yeah. little bit of rock and roll. I still remember the tune, you know. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I just, you know, when I hear the Osmonds, I think of flares. Oh, gosh. Did yeah. they always have flared pants? Like, yeah. They were dancing? I mean, I got too distracted by the uh, shiny white teeth, to be honest. Oh, the teeth were just. Um, yeah. Um, yeah, I do remember the variety show. I, I tell you, in our house, there was a bit of a competition. We, we didn't watch Donnie Marie. We watched Sonny and Cher and then the Cher show. Oh, okay. Yep. Um, Donnie Marie. Don, I always felt like with Donnie Marie, I was being baptized over and over again. Um, yeah, I hear you. I hear you. It was a bit sanitized. <laughs> yeah, for sure. You know what? My uh, my grandparents were uh, Donnie and Marie fans, so that was on, unfortunately, quite a bit. So I do remember it very well. Now I re- I don't you know you know where they got their start the Osmonds you know you know who we have to blame right oh who do we have to blame I'm trying to remember uh, Andy Williams oh that's right because uh, they performed on the show really early on didn't they he was they five did. wasn't he when he when he made his debut singing You Are My Sunshine on that show <laughs> just play that one over and over for ninety minutes oh, yeah right. he was um, he was five and I mean. In 1963, I mean, I, of course, believe it or not, I wasn't born for that. But uh, I do remember the Andy Williams show because it was on, it seems to me, forever. Yeah, I um, remember the Andy Williams show as well, actually, like reruns of that thing. Yeah. Yeah. And he, I, I, when I remember the Andy Williams show, there was a running gag of a guy in a bear suit running around chasing people. You remember that? I don't remember that. No, no. It's vaguely, you know, you know, maybe it's a fever dream. I don't know. Um, okay. Tony, here's the test. Can okay. you name five Osmonds? I mean, there's a hundred, but can you name five? Oh, my gosh. You know what? Not without looking at the notes, I'll be <laughs> honest. <laughs> I I never uh, took a particular interest in the uh, Osmond uh, family genealogy, let's say. 
Did you watch the cartoon? I did not. No. No. I watched the Jackson 5 cartoon. Yeah. You know, I was far more interested in the Jackson 5 than I ever would have been in the Osmonds. And... Okay. Ben or Puppy Love? Seriously. Oh. Go for Ben. Yeah. I mean, if I had to pick one of those two, for sure. Yeah. I mean, a song about a rat? I'm in. I'm in. Yep. Yep. But there were a lot of them. There were a lot of these Osmonds, right? They were uh, from Utah and Church of Latter-day Saints and... Um, Big families, of course. Let's we got the names here: Alan, Jay, Jimmy, Merrill, Wayne, Marie, Tom, and how do you say that? Viral. I think so. Yeah. And anyway. But then the Osmond, the Jackson Five were Alan, Jay, Merrill, Wayne, and Donnie, right? And, oh, oh, and we forgot one. Oh, who's I the forgot other one? one? Who's the other one? Little Jimmy. Remember Jimmy Osmond? Oh, that's right. Oh my goodness. Yep. Do you remember he he came out later and he was like he was huge in England, massive in England. Oh, that's crazy. Jimmy Osmond. Yeah, I'm wow. having uh, flashbacks here. Wow. Yeah, not good ones. No, no, not at all. <laughs> but I, no. bet, I bet you the charts were good, though. What What did you pick for the charts? Well, thanks to the DJ in L.A., Puppy Love was at number 11. Um, kidding. Uh, that would go on to hit number three. So here's the top five Billboard singles from that week. So he, he could have played any one of these five songs. Uh, all but one would be fine. Yes. Bread, Everything I Own. Osmond's, Down by the Lazy River. Tisk, tisk. Um, yeah. <laughs> do you remember this Robert John's cover of The Lion Sleeps Tonight? I actually do remember that cover. Yep. It's a good cover, isn't it? Oh, it is. I mean, it's it's a little bit different than the original, but very cool. Yep. Yeah. Number two was a, a, a Canadian, Neil Young, Heart of Gold. Yeah, that was Great a big song. Yep huge okay now here's here's where i get controversial number one was the a song written by two members of badfinger a song called without you by harry nilsson and i'm gonna say right now mariah carey does not hold a candle to the harry nilsson original version and i'm gonna tell you i don't even think i've heard mariah carey's version because i actively try not to listen to her so switch off so i will agree with you uh, as soon as i hear that uh you know her open her mouth i'm done i just switch whatever it's like oh god <laughs> i'm with you brother i'm with you it's pretty rough isn't it oh it absolutely is but you know uh just all of a sudden bringing up mariah carey makes me want to take a break here what about you yeah i think we need some kind of uh refreshment all right well let's take a commercial break i found a classic from 1955 so uh we'll be right back You know what I love about that uh, Jell-O commercial from 1955 is the fact that they don't hide. You look at the packaging. I found a picture of some packaging on a on a Jell-O uh, box from 1955, and I'm looking at it right now. They do not hide the fact that there's imitation cherry flavor. It's it's like big letters right across the bottom. And listen to this. Listen to the. Uh, ingredients list here okay so it says sugar gelatin citric acid natural cherry flavor enhanced with artificial flavor and uh, they they were big into their artificial flavors back in the 50s weren't they well because it's it's science man 
<laughs> yeah, it was viewed as progress, right? What do they say? Better living through chemistry or whatever? <laughs> uh, and there's always room for jello, you know? Let's be honest. Yeah, exactly, um, exactly. I love jello. I love, um, we, Andrea loves Lucille Ball. And for Christmas a couple of years ago, we, I bought her a whole box set of Lucy. Not I love Lucy, but the Lucy Show. Okay. And at, at the beginning of them, they'll go, the Lucy Show, brought to you by J-E-L-L-O. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> love it. I love it. Now we're uh, moving on to a story about two guys who haven't always loved each other. Uh, we're talking about Paul Simon here, of course, of Simon and Garfunkel. It's March 18th, 1972. We're back in London. And this is when Paul Simon scored his first solo number one album when he had his uh, self-titled debut. It went to the top of the UK charts. It featured, some, well, these are great songs, aren't they? Uh, Mother yeah, and Child classics. Reunion, Me and Julio Down by the Schoolyard. But it's actually not his first solo album. And we have to get into that because uh, Paul Simon and Art Garfunkel, of course, Simon and Garfunkel, had a, a long friendship that was pretty contentious as well, and uh, a lot of mistrust dating way back to the 1950s, actually. So um, what, what can you say about these two? They, they were, uh, it was like an on-again, off-again thing, wasn't it? Well, you know what? Uh, if, they, if, they, if their last name was Gallagher, it would have made more sense. Yeah, um, exactly. <laughs> nice. <laughs> uh, you know, I just it, it's a shame. I don't know what... I mean, I think to this day, I mean, I was listening to an interview with Art Garfunkel last year, and he was still, still talking about how his vocals were buried in the um, Bridge Over Trouble Water album, still talking about how Paul stabbed him in the back with what became the Paul Simon album. It's like, wow, it's 50 years on. I mean, at least Paul and Ringo aren't fighting over Let It Be anymore, you know, like it's kind of water under the troubled water under the bridge. Yeah, nice uh, one, nice one. <laughs> thank you. But you're right. First of all, Paul Simon's album was not his debut. His first solo album was only released in the UK in 65. Came out briefly in 69 in North America and then was pulled out because Simon hated it. And then was released in 81 as part of a box set. It's a pretty bare album. It's just him and an acoustic guitar. It's not bad. It's called the Paul Simon Songbook. But even that annoyed Art Garfunkel that he'd go to England to record this album by himself, right? Well, yeah, for sure. And a little bit of backstory here. You know, Art Garfunkel was concentrating on his film career and mm -hmm. uh, in the 60s. And Paul Simon uh, was like, what do you mean you got to wait six months before we can record this album? And, and uh, the friendship was becoming pretty fractured back then. But if you go back to when they first got together in the late 50s as uh, schoolboys, they met when they were 11 years old, which is pretty cool. But they're first iteration they were called tom and jerry and even Love then that. uh paul simon decided to record some songs on his own without telling art garfunkel about it and that mistrust was there right from the beginning well and as, as we talked about before we started talking about this on, on the microphone i mean the first paul simon album was originally going to be a simon and garfunkel album and paul simon merely erased the vocals and not for the first time by the way um but yeah, so there's a reason why Art Garfunkel didn't trust the guy, right? I mean, and I'm not going to say Art that, that either one was right or wrong. I'm not in that position, but there was a lot of a lot of fighting between the two of them, which is real shame because they're so good when they're together, aren't they? Well, they're brilliant when when they're together, and yeah, it makes you wonder, like, why would a guy like Paul Simon be insecure? But even he always was worried that people were going to think that 
Art Garfunkel was the actual songwriter because Art was taking lead vocals. I mean, very, very insecure, very strange. Well, yeah, it, it's, it's, it is strange. But, I mean, at the same time, he, uh, he's kind of an odd guy. He's, he's an odd duck anyways. But let's go back a second. When you were talking about Art Garfunkel was working on his film career, especially after Simon and Garfunkel finally broke up, Paul Simon was teaching writing at NYU. Can you imagine, Tony, being a student? Who do you get today? Oh, Professor Simon. Yeah, that's wild, eh? <laughs> I would love that. That'd be cool, cool, cool. So, yeah, it, it's... I don't know. Paul Simon's just one of those guys that... Again, though, when you hear them record... Do you remember that song they did, My Little Town, when they kind of got back together again? Yeah, yeah. Pure magic. I love that song, by the way. Pure magic. You well, know? and do you remember when they reunited for that concert at Central Park? I mean, that was a big deal, right? About 500,000 people there. Incredible. Yeah, 100%. Oh, yeah. And the, okay. And the, have you ever seen, have you seen the whole video? Yeah, it's great. It's fantastic. It's really, and you, you watch it and it's like, even their album cuts were massive hits. And it's just like, wow, these guys... I mean, I grew up with Simon and Garfunkel. My mother loved them. So we had all their albums. And I, my particular favorite song by them is The Boxer. Like, oh, yeah. That's, that yeah, that's a great song. But oh, just fantastic. Well, you know, after I saw footage of that concert at Central Park, I actually ran out and bought the book of the piano sheet music for that. I just wanted to have it. So I remember doing that. Gosh, I was, you know, would have been maybe grade 10 when I ran out. And I still, I still have it, actually. But uh, all all the songs, you know, from that uh, live show. There's a good. I, I in the about ten years ago, I bought a CD of the concert, but it came with a DVD with the entire concert. So it's kind of a nice little package to have both the the music. You know, driving the back in the old days, folks, when you had a CD player in your car, <laughs> and then you could watch the DVD. But you know, since that Central Park show too, they've reunited a couple times. But it, it's just that distrust between the two of them. And uh, are they even on speaking terms now, do you think? I'm not sure. No, I haven't heard No. Really. The last I heard, Paul Simon, and no, they're not at all. But uh, again, it's, they're just still, they're still arguing with the old. It's, it's all old. It's nothing new. I mean, you're, it's like, Art, give it a rest. <laughs> yeah, yeah. A lot of bitterness there. But uh, it's, and like you say, it's too bad because they are magical together. Absolutely. I, I love the way their voices blend and what can you do i don't think they may they may never reconcile actually well i don't even know if art stevens and i love by the way for the record uh art garfunkel waited a couple more years before he put out his debut solo album called angel claire but art garfunkel released a song called bright eyes do you know it yeah yeah it, it's pure, his voice in that song is flawless i just i think he's got a great i think the only thing between art garfunkel and simon is that garfunkel couldn't write he never wrote a song um and he needed paul simon's songs to sing and they were, they were as you say they, they they blended their vocals really well together but you know and paul simon to his credit he can sing and he's got i love his voice and i love his i mean graceland who doesn't love graceland yeah, right yeah a brilliant album for sure but with uh, the everly brothers providing backing vocals on the song graceland yeah, it's incredible. Yeah. But, you know, I heard a little story about uh, uh, Simon and Garfunkel, too, just the type of sniping that went on. And this, because, you know, uh, Paul Simon is not a tall guy. He's very short. And uh, Art, Gar Art Garfunkel said to him uh, during a photo shoot, 
you know, no matter what, even though you're writing the songs and all that stuff, I'm always going to be taller than you. It's <laughs> just like, what a snipe uh, that was. Boys, boys, boys. <laughs> boys, boys, boys. Oh, you got to love it, right? Yeah, absolutely. Now, speaking of things you've got to love, this one, this next segment is... Uh, Oh, I, hang on now. Wait, 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 oh, we skipped the charts. My bad. you got to talk about the top five albums because you would love the top five albums this week. Yeah. You know what? I haven't forgotten about the charts for a while. So, okay. I know. You, 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 like, but listen, this week is, uh, let's let's tip our hats to St. Patrick's Day. As you know, I'm Irish. So maybe it's the luck of the Irish that, uh, you know, you tripped yourself up this week. <laughs> well, and I, you know my, I told you my famous story. I'm not going to go over that on the air, but uh my famous <laughs> one and only St. Patrick's Day gig, which uh, I'll, I'll never do that again. <laughs> well, you know, and it, well, I'm hopefully going to go to the parade next Sunday here in Toronto because the parade's on again, which is exciting. So, yeah, well, let's go over this chart. Actually, I'm looking at it right now, and it's amazing. So, yeah, <laughs> it's well. Again, you look at the top five. I, I don't think there's an album here. I think I own all five albums. Uh, number five is the Rolling Stones, Hot Rocks, 1964 to 1971. Yeah, I've got that one yes. on my shelf here. Yeah, I know. I remember seeing it. Yeah. Um, an album I just listened to uh, three days ago. Yes, Fragile. Phenomenal album. Carol King, her follow-up to Tavistry, which made number one, called Music. Number two, George Harrison and Friends with the concert for Bangladesh. Yeah. Friends, friends being Bob Dylan, you know. Yeah, and that was the template, right, for all the future uh, fundraising concerts that went on, that this was the one that broke the, uh, made the mold, I guess, as they say. I think so. I think I, I would agree. And I, I you know, the con it's a hell of a concert, your favorite and my favorite, Billy Preston does, that's the way God plans it. And when he gets, he comes out from un around the organ and dances across the stage. Yeah, I'm smiling right now as I think of that. Me actually. too. <laughs> I just love him. Um, and Ringo doing it, Don't Come Easy. It's a, it's a hell of a concert. And you're right. It set the pace for what was to follow in the years to come. And in fact, Bob Geldof, when he was organizing the Live Aid concert, called George and said, what's your best advice? And, and I don't know if Harrison said, don't go through any organization. Keep the money. Buy a ship and take it yourself. And that's what Geldof in mid-year did. Yeah, that's fantastic. And George Harrison, when he was talking about uh, why he did this concert, he said, well, a friend of mine needed help. So I said, yes, like, why wouldn't I? Yeah, oh, it's a great. And, and and that was the first appearance by Dylan in America since 66. So it was a huge concert. And any way you look at it, it's just a massive show. Yeah, for great sure. Great live album. Great live album. And number one, I, saw, I heard it last night and I actually brought tears to my eyes. American Pie by Don McLean. Yeah, and we were just talking about that a couple of weeks ago, weren't we, on the show? But, yeah, yeah what a classic I, song. Boy, that oh, song was that song. everywhere when I was a teenager, actually. I, I still remember that. Yeah, you know, I know that you're in love with him because I saw you dancing in the gym. One of the great lines of all time. <laughs> <laughs> Any high schooler knows that feeling. Anyone. I'm sorry. You oh, just know it. Right? Ab absolutely, absolutely. Great line. Now, it is time for our From Memphis to Merseyside moment, and we've got a big one here. I love here. this story. <laughs> yeah, it is. Uh, you know what? It's, it's, a, it's a love or hate thing with this guy, but uh, let's cue the transition music, and we'll be right back. So 
So we've got a pretty interesting story for our Memphis to Mersey side, and we've already talked about the Mersey beats earlier on. So, Tony, I know you're a big Elvis fan, so am I. But uh, why don't you tell us what's going on in Memphis for this story? This is a very cool story. It is a cool story. Um, it's one of those love-hate things when you think about this figure. But March 15th, <laughs> March 15th 1955, Elvis signed a management contract with... Uh, Colonel Tom Parker. And you know, I saw the trailers for that biopic that's coming out on uh, June 24th. And it's it's all about Elvis Presley, but really from the perspective of Colonel Tom Parker. I mean, there's no doubt that that was a big deal in Elvis's career. You know, uh, Tom Parker, who, by the way, that was not his, his real name. I, I think a lot of people know that. But uh, he, ha- he was, I, I always view... Colonel Tom Parker is a huckster, to be honest. What about you? Yeah, I do. Who, who's isn't it? Tom Tom Hanks who's playing him in the the new movie. Yeah, it is. It's Tom Hanks. Yeah, with a little bit which of which is which is interesting casting. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, I, I think Tom Parker was responsible for some of the problems that Elvis faced later on in life. Um, for so many reasons, uh, you know, like not letting him tour, uh, uh, never leaving America. He only did one concert, two concerts outside of America. Um, yeah, I, but but on the other hand, he did bring Elvis to what he became. I mean, he Elvis, love him or hate him, he did help Elvis with his career, right? No, oh, absolutely. I mean, uh, he took Elvis to that superstar uh, level that very few people ever get to. But I feel like throughout his career, you know, and like you say, there was a reason why he didn't want uh, Elvis touring <laughs> Europe, right? And what was that? Yes, there was. Well, he he. There was immigration problems. I mean, well, he that's wasn't, right. Yeah, I mean, very selfish reasons. He could have easily cleaned that up. At, at some point, he could have gone and gotten all that sorted out. But he didn't for whatever reason. You know, and there's a lot of theories as to why that was too. But it's interesting, right? Well, it is because all these other rock and roll guys were going over to England, and Elvis never went because Tom Parker was worried about his passport status, and it's like. Seriously, uh, you know, it seemed very selfish to me. But uh, and it's too well, bad. and he wouldn't—he wouldn't even send Elvis to someone else. He could have very easily said, "Look, I can't go, but you go on my behalf." Like he could have done that, but he just—he didn't. He was very selfish for that. And also, the amount of money he made from Elvis is kind of criminal. Well, absolutely. What I mean, he had a huge percentage of of it was a, it was all half, right? That he was half. Making. It was fifty percent. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean. He doesn't get much bigger than that, you know? No, no. So, man, he made a lot of money off of Elvis. And like you say, I, I agree. I think um, there, there's the good and the bad of this story. But the bad is is that uh, a lot of Elvis's problems were not exactly helped by his management. Oh, no. Quite quite, quite the opposite, in fact. Yeah, quite the opposite. And even in the 68 special, the, the comeback special, right? Tom Parker had... Uh, he was supposed to be in charge of getting all the tickets out to audience members and he didn't do it for, I can't remember the reason why, but they were stuck all of a sudden uh, with, Oh my gosh, we have no audience. And they had to, you know, run to the restaurant across the street from the studio and tell people, Hey, Elvis is singing across the way here. Come on over. And then they had uh, ads on the radio to try to get a last minute audience. But that was Tom Parker again. It felt it feels it felt a little bit like sabotage, to be honest with you. Yeah, absolutely, and um, I don't know. I don't know what to say about him. I I have mixed thoughts about uh, Colonel Tom Parker. I mean, I recognize his role in uh, shooting Elvis into superstardom, but 
I also, it makes me a little bit sad and angry thinking about some of the damage that he did to, uh, to Elvis as well. Yeah, sad. But again, on the positive side, we have all those great, great music of Elvis. And, and, and the more you go into Elvis' story, the more you realize that Colonel Tom really wasn't the best thing for Elvis in, in the long run. But he got him where he got him. And unfortunately, Elvis, you know, you hear these stories like Bob Dylan dumped Albert Grossman by 1970. You can realize that Albert Grossman wasn't all what he was saying to be, you know. So Elvis could have easily dumped Colonel, but he loved Colonel Tom, right? He loved him. Yeah. So, and Elvis was a loyal guy. I mean, he, he, he stuck, with, so. stuck with his people right up until his death, right? All those, uh, yep. you look at the members of the Memphis Mafia who were, I mean, mooching off him uh, in a big way, but he stuck with those guys right, right through. And then... After he passed away, they stabbed him in the back by all writing these horrible books about him. So, you know, what can yeah. you do, Tony? But you know what? I am very excited for that movie when that comes out on uh, yeah, me too. June 24th. I, too. I cannot wait. You know what? I should plan a time to... We should we should meet somewhere and go see it together. That'd be kind of fun. Well, I have a sneaking suspicion that I'm not going to be feeling well on June 24th and a sick date <laughs> might be in order, so... Yeah, I feel the sniffles coming off of myself, actually, too. It <laughs> might take a while to get there, but... Yeah, let's make that happen. Well, this was uh, another fantastic road trip. Uh, and you know what, folks? We really appreciate you tuning in week in, week out. It's uh, This was road trip number 46, so we are only four away from number 50 and we're actually only about two weeks away from the one year anniversary of the show so very exciting very exciting yeah and and uh, tony just very quickly happy saint patrick's day to all of us who are celebrating it yes happy saint patrick's day and uh, you know what it is uh, spring is in the air you can just feel it so uh, it's yeah. a great great time of year fingers crossed fingers crossed well folks thanks for listening and we look forward to being in your headphones again soon See you next time. Thanks for listening to our road trip. The music was by Rick Denis. And if you're enjoying what you're hearing, be sure to click the follow or subscribe button in your favorite podcast player. That way you'll be the first to know whenever we release a new episode. How else can people help, Aaron? They can follow us on Facebook and Instagram and check out our website. And if you think we're worth the five stars please leave us a review. Thanks for hitting the road with us today, and we'll see you again soon.